At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The best month for stocks in nearly a year and a half is nearly in the books. We'll discuss what lies ahead for your money with the Investment Committee. Joining me today, including a special guest, Altimeter's Brad Gerstner. He's going to be with me in just a few minutes. Also with me for the hour, Josh Brown, Jenny Harrington, Jim Labenthal, Kevin Simpson, everybody here at Post 9 today. Take a look at the markets. Carl just told you Dow's good for about 286. NASDAQ's having a bit of a rough day. S&P is virtually flat down about a fifth of a percent, 0.2. And there's a 432, the 10-year note. Josh, go to you. Um, You have yields up slightly today. You had Chicago PMI was was a huge beat. Yeah. Got people talking about Goldilocks again. PCE was in line, strong growth, falling inflation, all good for for, uh, investors here? Look, core PCE, 2%. The average over the last six months is 2.5%. The average over the last 12 months is 3.5%. I just gave you that one data point, and then I asked you, what's the Fed's next move? Um, if it's if it's not uh, holding tight, you know it's a cut. It's just a matter of when, because you're probably not going to get this reacceleration in inflation at any point. So then, why are we at five percent, five and a half percent in that environment? We genuinely don't have to be. There's also no need to stimulate because the jobs market is incredible right now. Anyone that wants to work can work. There are still raises everywhere within the economy. Um, so that aspect, I think, is Goldilocks. I wouldn't say exactly Goldilocks, but the story today is not the economy, it's stocks. Salesforce.com is a very important company. It is a bellwether in the valley. They're one of these companies that they got the memo that Gerstner sent to uh, Salesforce, time to get fit. They chopped out a ton of expenses. I know a lot of middle management people at Salesforce. You should see the steakhouse bills. All of that is in the past. That's why this is the best performing Dow stock of the year. It's up 65%, I think. Better than Microsoft. A lot of people don't even know that. This is a company that is now beating on revenue, beating on earnings, buying back stock, full-year operating cash flow between 30 and 33%. The previous forecast was 22 to 30. So they are ratcheting up their guidance. And again, it's in the Dow. It's in the NASDAQ. It's in uh, all of, the, all of the, um, the main indices that we follow. So that's the story, more so than anything going on in the economy. And it's just one example of several very large technology companies that are having results like these. And that's what's moving the chains for the S&P. Sure, your, your points are well made. But, you know, Jimmy, you, you, need, you need the economy to continue to put up these kinds of numbers for the narrative to remain intact. There are really strong individual stock stories, the likes of which that Josh just documented in Salesforce. But for the bullish narrative to be maintained, inflation needs to come down, the economy needs to stay up, kind of end of story. Because then yields cooperate if that happens. So agree with everything you say. 
But then the implication is that actually the broadening of the rally that we've been seeing in the last month and we're definitely seeing today can continue. And I'll say something that everybody knows. If you look at the small cap indices, if you look at the value indices, you look at the Dow, you look at the equal weight S&P 500, it hasn't been that great of a year. It hasn't been a bad year. All right. Everything's positive. Let's get that on the table. But it hasn't been a great year the way the S&P 500 up almost 20 percent. And what you're seeing now, you're seeing it today, you've been seeing it all month, is a broadening of the rally, which is dependent upon the economic scenario, Scott, that you just laid out, which I've been promoting for some time and which I'm really quite happy to see in today's numbers. And I think it's going to continue. I think, I think there's every indication, not just from the data, but from Fed speakers, that they're seeing things going in the right direction. So what Josh is saying about next move is a cut. Yeah, it is. Now, one thing I want to say on cuts, all right, this idea that you're going to get four cuts next year, I don't believe it. Maybe two, because that will reflect that inflation is coming down, but you're not going to need more than that if the economy continues to do what I've been saying all along that it is doing, which is expanding on the back of infrastructure and supply chain onshore. Just let things continue the way they are, and in particular, what I mean by that is let the rally continue right, to broaden. We'll get more uh, on the market in a moment, but I do want to do a story that is new at noon, and the fact that it is getting spicy again and quite spicy between Disney and Triance Nelson Peltz following word the billionaire investor will wage a proxy fight to seek directors on the company's board, including a seat for himself. I'm told from a source familiar that it will very likely be more than two seats, probably three, possibly three, but that a final number hasn't been fully decided yet. I don't have any potential names to report as of now. Made clear to me as well that Mr. Peltz is very unhappy with the stock's performance over the past year, ever since he made peace with the company and dropped that prior battle with Disney. From the day Peltz famously dropped his fight to the end of last week, the stocks lost $27 billion in market value. So that's one thing that obviously has gotten uh, the folks at Tryon quite worked up. In a statement, Disney says it's moving from a period of fixing to a new era of building and that it continues to refresh its board, including the appointments just made of Morgan Stanley CEO, the outgoing CEO, of course, James Gorman, veteran media executive, Sir uh, Jeremy Derrick. Bottom line, Peltz is back. And this time, he seems determined to take his fight to the very end. So, Jenny, um, you're a shareholder in Disney. Uh, I think that's the way to bottom line it is he's back. And the way things ended last time with the niceties exchanged on this network, et cetera, oh, boy, have things changed. I, th I think that's right. And it's funny because for me, there's I'm really excited that Brad's going to be on today because there's echoes right now to me with Disney and Nelson Peltz that echoes back to Brad and Face and Meta at this time last year, where it's just kind of like, enough. Like, we know you've got a phenomenal business. We know you have an unbelievably loyal, embedded client base. We know that there is money to be made here, but enough. Like, you need to wake up and you need to start doing things right. And so we already saw that in this quarter's report, where we already saw Nelson Peltz having had an impact, where they actually started disclosing, they started breaking things out. There was a 25-page um, presentation explaining earnings and the history and the strategy going forward. That's thanks to Nelson Peltz. And so I think it is kind of that moment in time where it's just enough is enough. And I wouldn't be surprised if we look back and this is actually a really pivotal time. There's significant upside ahead. I see Josh twitching. So no, I ask no, 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 are no, expenses no. the problem here? I don't think so. To some degree they are. Well, see, that, that, they they that. see Josh, no, no, raised, no, no, let, let me just interject yeah. for a second. Jo Josh raises a good point, which leads to the next question, which is what does Peltz want now? He wanted cost cutting. He got it. He got it. Yeah. Right. right. Now maybe he wants something to happen with the people who are doing the cost cutting. And a, suc right? a successor. And uh, that he's CEO. not happy 
at all with the current makeup of the board, obviously, mm -hmm. and the current person who leads the board. But that's and that fine. is Bob Iger. Right, but that's fine. And you know what? Bob Iger screwed up the succession planning before, and that's why he's back. And now he's saying, like, get this right. Like, enough is enough. Get it right. And if you look at their earnings, by the way, the earnings ex expected growth from here, like, I know they're way off of what they were, but it's pretty decent. Earnings are expected to grow 21% in 25, 21% in 26. It's trading at a really discounted valuation. Basically, you could say, like, it's trading just on the parks, and at that, it's trading about 15 times. It's not, it's not in a terrible place, and I'm all for Nelson Peltz trying to shake it up. I hope he does it in the right way, um, but anything anything to say enough is enough is, is good news by my standards. Jimmy, you're a shareholder as well. Yeah, you know, investor, really good investors will often say, what's the one thing that you want from good management? You want them to be excellent stewards of capital. Now, I think Nelson Peltz is a great advisor on exactly that topic, how to allocate capital. And there are big capital decisions to be made. What point. to do about Hulu. What, we know what they're going to do, but how much they pay for it. What to do about ESPN. What to do about the dividend. I see nothing but positives from Mr. Peltz and his uh, non nominees joining the board. I'm a little older now than I was, and I will tell you, I think the end game here is pretty obvious that he gets his seats on the board. And I just wish we didn't have to go through the movie. I wish this could be like a, you know, a trailer instead of a two-hour movie. I wish we could, like next week, just well, get I mean, to the resolution. This, this, is, this is the sequel. Right. I mean, let's I, you want to play that out. This is the sequel, I, right? We already watched the first movie. I, yeah, well, and we're going to see if the sequels is hope, better than the original. I, I don't have a chess hope, move. No, Does, just let him on. Just well, let him on well, the board. Well, hear, hear me out. Yeah. Does Iger have a chess move where he preemptively does something big with ESPN, sells a big stake in it to Amazon or Apple? Is that a chess move where all of a sudden the shareholders say, oh, look, we just got a 15% pop in our stock. ESPN asset now has a, a secured future with a tech giant involved. Let's leave things the way they are. That's is that possible? It's completely feasible. Of course it is. Now, I, That's I'm not what gonna, I would do. Yeah, but I'm not going to naysay it. I mean, that requires consent from Amazon. And how many times have Dude, we the not... the numbers we're talking wait, wait, about wait, 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 are wait, tiny just, for, just, for I, that. I got it. But how many yeah, times yeah. have not you and I, but us on the show discussed, well, if Apple just bought, name the company, right? And they don't. And, doesn't, and, they, and they, don't. they don't do it. I so, agree. Like, but I agree with the thought bubble. My only point is that it's highly more likely that Mr. Peltz and his nominees gets the seats. Let's just get it done. Like, let's get it done in the next yeah. week. Let's not drag this into 2024. Um, How come? Hold on real quick. I'm going to get Kevin involved. You don't own Disney. You ever own it? We owned it until they cut the dividend during the pandemic. And you had no choice but to to bail on it, it right, a, because of your strategy? It was a Thursday night. They cut the dividend because of the pandemic. No movie theaters, cruise lines, theme parks, all of that. They haven't reinstated it, but this is an opportunity and a catalyst where I think Pelt's getting on the board. We're in action like Josh talks about. Reinstating the dividend would put it right back in our queue and we'd be shareholders again for What sure. were you going to say quickly? I was just going to say there's an, under, there's an underrated potential story here. Uh, this past summer, Disney acquired uh, Candle Media which is two consultants that had worked with Bob Iger for a long time at Disney. It's uh, Tom Staggs, Kevin Mayer. Uh, they are now in the fold, supposed, allegedly taking a look at ESPN, trying to help them figure out strategy. That could be your successor story, which is another big issue at Disney. They don't have a strong Staggs candidate. or Mayer, they were already under the roof one time and, and okay, failed because they weren't going to be the, the, the guys. But they're very, very so respected. They're very respected by both Wall Street, Hollywood, that also could be a preemptive chess move. It's like, look, you told me you didn't like my, my uh, you told me I have a problem with uh, succession. Here's my answer to that. Yeah, all of, a, all of a sudden, that, 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 that could 
be something is all I'm saying. So let's, let's, let's I mean, stock, 52-week high, 118, today, uh, 92. So you, you make of it what it is. We gave you the background, and again, this, this reporting that it could be um, more than two, it could be three. Um, that's what I'm hearing from, from, from the people that I talk to. Um, so let's move on. I do want your opinion, though, Kev, on the market, as you do have these 2024 predictions. And we got Brad Gerstner coming up in just a second, too. So I want to remind all of you of that. Um, Dubrovko over at JPM, downside to 4,200 on the S&P. Mike Wilson expecting a bumpy ride. Big shock. Um, <laughs> but what does Kevin Simpson expect? I think we can be more optimistic. I've been reading a lot of the strategists out there, and if we get a number on the S&P 500 of 245 or 250, which is a big, which is a big jump, and then you see inflation come down and then interest rates come down, whether it's dramatically or because the Fed's doing interest rate cuts, you can get a multiple in there at 18, 19, maybe as high as 20, and that puts your S&P targets for next year at 4,700 to 5,000. So I, I, I think I can be a little bit more optimistic than some of the things that we're reading here on our sheets. But um, it's, a, it's a pe dependent upon a lot of the Goldilocks themes that you started the show with. Okay. They need to continue. Um, I mean, what, one of the central questions, obviously, is, is what's tech going to do? Um, is it going to have the kind of year that it had this, this past year? It was one of the topics I asked famed value investor John Rogers of Ariel uh, yesterday at CNBC's CFO Council down in D.C. Here's what he told me. I think the top of growth stocks is coming again. I really, really do. You saw the, the journal had a story today, the Russell 3000 is up roughly 34%, and the Russell 3000 value is only up 2%. It's one of the largest gaps in the history of, you know, the recorded history, I guess, of looking at those indexes. So uh, that gives me a lot of confidence that small value is going to be the place to be. Uh, and that growth stocks are going to have a very difficult time as we go into next year. That's a pretty good segue to Brad Gerstner, huh? He's our halftime headliner today, joins us exclusively, the Altimeter Capital founder and CEO. Welcome back. It's good to see you. I mean, it's great to be here. This is so spicy already. I have a piece of advice <laughs> for Nelson Peltz. Go ahead. Okay, he should call Elon Musk and nominate him to that proxy board of three people. We want to spice up and do something bold at Disney. Let's get GFY himself on the board. The problem is, I think um, that I think Musk has already told Iger where to go. Uh, and he did that last night with Andrew, of course, which I know you're alluding to, but we're not going to play it right now. Uh, nonetheless, so let's talk. Let's talk about John Rogers. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. You must have a lot. I mean, I know you have respect for opposing views and investors as seasoned as, as he. Yes. No, I have a lot of respect for John Rogers. But on this issue, he's dead wrong. And let me tell you why he's wrong. If you look at the last 10 years, Scott, tech has compounded at about 16%. Non-tech has compounded at about 6%. Now, you might say, why is that? Well, the reason is, is because tech earnings have compounded in the mid-teens, and non-tech earnings have compounded at about 5%. Although we had a big step up in 2023, it was really just a reversion to the mean from the big step down, the compression we had in 2022, caused by this parabolic increase in rates. We're just back on the trend line in terms of tech's relative growth to non-tech. And so, of course, we don't have the asymmetric setup that we had at the start of 2023. But I think that tech is going to continue to outperform non-tech in 2024. I think the setup is like you guys outlined this morning. We've got to see interest rates 
continue to roll. Those that will be dependent upon inflation continuing to roll. And growth needs to growth. We all know is, is slowing, but it needs to remain intact. So the consensus view now is kind of this soft to medium landing. But if if you really want a differentiated view on tech, we just heard from Amazon, we just heard from Microsoft, we just heard from Snowflake and Salesforce, etc. They took the message from 2022. They got fit, and now they're all accelerating into the start of a new super cycle around augmented and artificial intelligence. And so when I look at 2024, I'm happy to take the other side of John's trade. We're going to have our entire portfolio in tech. Of course, we're not, uh, you know, we're not all in. We have plenty of shorts in our book as well. You know, I said at the start of 2023, we took a very contrarian position. Everybody was on board the Mike Wilson bandwagon of hard landing. We had 250 billion come out of the equity market, cycle into the bond market. The bond market ends up having a disastrous year. The stock market, if you pick the right stocks, had an epic year. And as we enter 2024, we have a little less, fewer dollars at risk because the setup is more evenly balanced. We're gonna see plenty of opportunities over the course of the year. But our book is going to continue to be positioned around those tech companies that are beneficiaries of this new secular growth trend we have around augmented intelligence. And we're going to continue to short those industries that are being disrupted uh, by those things. And I think that that spread of 16 to 6 percent that we've seen over the last decade uh, will continue in 2024. Oh, wow. So you think growth or tech is going to outperform as dramatically as it did this year because of those trends that you just cited? I, as I said, Scott, there's no way that it outperforms at the level it did this year. This was the most historic outperformance, a catch-up to 22. Remember, 22 was the, the most significant year of underperformance by tech to non-tech. So now we're back on a normalized trend line. So I think the outperformance will be more normalized. But there's a reason. This is not a, you know, this, this is not some great mystery. There's a reason that tech has outperformed, right? 20 years ago, tech was about 5.5% of global GDP. Today, it's 15%. I asked the panel a simple question. In 10 years, will tech be more than 15% of global GDP? I asked another question. Over the next 10 years, do you expect tech earnings to grow at a faster rate than non-tech? If you believe both of those things to be true, which we do in spades, then you need to be invested in technology as opposed to non-tech assets. And I, and I still, you know, looking at your holdings, it's it's really the same that it's been, at least as you express your view on AI, whether it's through Meta or obviously NVIDIA and then, of course, Microsoft. And on the Microsoft note, man, so, so much has happened, it seems, since the last time we spoke. What do you make of the whole open AI drama that, that happened with Microsoft and now that Sam's back? at open, what does an investor like you make of a situation like that? Well, first, let's, let, let, let's telescope out here just a second. Foundation models um, combined with the supercomputing technology, accelerated compute that NVIDIA has brought to the table has led to a whole new paradigm for how companies are going to organize, run, and make decisions in their business. They're gonna replace a lot of human decision-making with data and machine-driven decision-making, right? So all of these things are going to be very important, and we see this in the earnings report. This is not you know, some big surprise. Microsoft has reported 
that Copilot is their fastest growing product of all time. 18,000 enterprise customers are already using Copilot. We heard yesterday from Salesforce, a thousand people have signed up to Copilot. We heard from Snowflake yesterday. Um, the, the same thing. We heard from um, Amazon at reInvent this week that 10,000 customers are already using Bedrock. So again, this is not some mystery. There is a reason why these companies are outperforming. Now, as to the unfortunate incidents as they related to OpenAI, um, you, you know, I think that Satya did an incredible job of getting Microsoft into the lead position in AI. Um, I think Amazon's doing a really admirable job of playing uh, a, a fast catch-up. Their principal partner is a foundation model uh, company called Anthropic. In the case of Microsoft, it's OpenAI. Part of the reason that a lot of investors in Silicon Valley were challenged when looking at the OpenAI investment was the complications associated with this structure. Right, and so I think you heard a lot of calls, including from Sacha, over the course of, of the last week. Simplify the structure, put together a reasonable board that makes sense. This needs to be driven by profit motivations, at least at the open AI level. Um, but I still think there are questions to be answered. I mean, in the letter today, Ilya, I don't, it's not clear whether or not he's returning to the company. You know, Elon said on stage with Andrew yesterday, what, what, what was the reason? that, uh, you know, that, that he was so concerned. Um, and so I think some important questions need to be asked. But if you ask me today, OpenAI is in a much better position and Microsoft is in a much better position vis-a-vis -vis OpenAI than they were three weeks ago. Why? Mm -hmm. Because they're dealing with the structural challenges that were very evident the company was going to have. But I don't think they're out of the woods. There's a hell of a lot of competition, right? Meta is going to release Llama 3 in Q2 of next year. Um, Anthropics, you know, bringing their model to the table. Mistral's going to release a model. I mean, you know, uh, we need to send out a search party for Google these days. I mean, where is Sundar in all of this? Uh, but, you know, they were supposed to launch Gemini. I have my own reasons uh, or thoughts as to why they haven't launched Gemini. Uh, but Google eventually will get into the game here um, and get back to, you know, releasing products. And certainly Apple, the 800-pound gorilla that nobody's talking about, um, you know, they hold this enviable position uh, by controlling the glass that we're all using to access the web. And eventually, you know, they'll have an updated version of Siri that's really going to take advantage mm -hmm. of these next generation AI tools. What, what's so interesting to me as you, you know, express your views is that I've got somebody sitting right next to me here and Josh Brown, whose views I know that you respect. And you guys speak on and offline about markets. and. He's all in Alphabet, not all in, but I mean, he's betting big on Alphabet. And I'll let Josh ask you a question because I'm assuming he wants to go to that very topic, <laughs> what he sees that you don't. Uh, Brad, we, 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 we didn't really debate it, but uh, I was bullish Alphabet for the second half of this year, uh, and you were bearish. I, it I heard you on a podcast the other day. It sounds like you haven't changed your tune on, on Alphabet. What is your big concern uh, if you like, when you talk to shareholders in Alphabet now, is it that they don't have the lead position in AI and that all of a sudden uh, search is going to get away from them? Or is there something else? Because that, that likelihood so, seems really slim to me. Okay, so Josh, here's my fundamental position search is going to be replaced by agent led information discovery. I see it every day. My 15-year-old son says, Dad, I don't use Google anymore. I just use ChatGPT. 
I talked to 2,000 people at the Javits Center. How many people have used ChatGPT instead of Google over the course of the last two days? A thousand hands in the room go up. I asked my analysts who are sitting on their desk. They're replacing their use of Google with ChatGPT. We are having a fundamental structural shift in how people retrieve and discover answers to the questions they have. So, Google is going to have to compete in this new thing, okay? Meta's gonna compete, Apple's gonna compete, Microsoft with Copilot, ChatGPT, et cetera. There are gonna be six, seven, eight incredible competitors there. Google will be one of those competitors. And let's assume that they're a very competent competitor because they have all of these assets. The question to you, do you, what do you think the likelihood is that they're going to reconstruct as dominant of monopoly in this new thing as they have in search? So Facing I would... innovators dilemma, facing the cultural challenges they have. I would just say as an investor, Josh, and I have a ton of respect for you, the discount rate that you need to apply to this investment is much, much higher today than it was two years ago. Two years ago, there was no challenger. Google was the only game in town. Now we know search is being replaced with a new form of information discovery. And all I'm saying is even if they emerge as the leader in this thing, they will not have as much share of the pool of profits as they have in search. It's almost impossible for me to see how they replicate that. Now, I also have concerns about how they're operating the business, how they're slow in releasing products, the cultural challenges they have. I think they have challenges around the TPU versus the GPUs of NVIDIA, but I, I will stipulate that they get all of that fixed. I still don't think they can replicate the monopoly. So I think the, the area where Google still maintains the advantage is they have all of the information, they have all the data, they have all of the users, and there is a universe in which they don't have 95% of the market like they do in search. They keep some very large part of the market, but it's actually more profitable, uh, the new era. The main difference between search and, and these large language models, from what I can see, um, search is Google tells you where to go find the answer. Uh, the large language model just gives you the answer. I think Google wants to be in that business. I don't think they need to own 95% of it in order to be highly, highly profitable, especially when combined with their franchises like Gmail, uh, like YouTube. These are uh, assets that will greatly benefit from this new world that you described, and these are one-of-a-kind assets that only Google has. And I, it, it, you know, so on the one hand, one could make it, you know, people have asked me, are you short Google? The answer is no, we're not short Google. In fact, we own Google for part of this year. Um, the question for you, Josh, is are they, it, you know, what, it, where is the highest and best use of your dollar? And all I'm saying is that the loss of that search position, every dollar of search is almost 100% margin. Okay, in that business. And listen, Ruth is an incredible CFO, now president over there. There's tons of costs to be cut there. They have tons of assets. All of that is true. And by the way, Silicon Valley is healthier when we have a healthy Google. Okay, I hope that Google um, follows Mark Zuckerberg's lead and gets fit in 2024. I hope that they launch Gemini and it's fantastic. I hope that they launch a ChatGPT competitor that's fantastic. I'm just saying that if you were sitting uh, you know, at the poker table and looking at the, at the hands and saying, do they have the same pocket aces in the age of GPT that they had in search, I think it's almost impossible for you to say that that's the case. So let's do this, Brad. We'll make that the last word for this segment. Bear with us, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have more uh, with Brad Gerstner. We'll do our chart of the day, plays right into his portfolio. We gotta talk some Uber. What about PDD, Pinduoduo? That thing had a big gain the other day. We'll talk about that as well next.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story. Asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. We're back with Altimeter Capital's Brad Gerstner. He's on halftime exclusively today. All right. Our chart of the day um, is a stock that we honestly haven't talked about all that much, and, and maybe we should have. That's Snowflake. Best week since early June. Um, on the back of these earnings, Brad, what's your assessment of what I think is a fairly large position for you and has been since before they went public? Well, it, you know, Snowflake was one of those companies where there's a pull forward of a massive amount of demand in 2021 as everybody needed to get digital and in the cloud it was ascendant and just as a reminder snowflake is the leading data analytics platform on aws on azure and of course directly with, with all their own customers they have over 10,000 enterprise customers some of the largest customers in the world i mean rumored to be from apple to jp morgan etc rely on them to run their business day to day this is the most important data in your business. And as we've learned over the course of the past six months, we heard it from Microsoft, we heard it from Amazon, data has gravity. People do not, for governance and privacy reasons, want to be sending their data over to OpenAI and letting them run models on it and then worry about whether or not that data ends up in their training run for their next GPT. No, that's not how the world is going to evolve. The models are coming to the data. Okay, so Anthropic and all the models, Llama 2 at, the, at present on Amazon, OpenAI on Azure. Remember, when those models are being, run, are being run on the data stores at Amazon and Azure, it's very likely being powered by Snowflake. And now Snowflake is entering into all of the data engineering, data science workloads, and AIs, including co-pilots, on their own platform. In fact, Altimeter powers our own GPT, Altimeter GPT, which our team uses to analyze stuff using Snowflake. We put in hundreds of expert calls and transcripts, et cetera, as unstructured data into Snowflake. And we use our, our, our foundation models running in Snowflake to get answers to these questions. So it's very much, um, you know, you think about the, 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 the primitive ingredients here, 
uh, to the next wave of AI. Data is one of the most important ones. Snowflake is at the tip of the spear. They just grew again, well over 30%. They're going to grow this year at about 36%. This is a company that's at $3 billion in revenue run rate already. Um, you know, we have them doing uh, nearly $4 billion in revenue next year. But, but listen to this, Scott. $4 billion in revenue with 29% free cash flow margins. Okay, so this is growing exceptionally profitably. Um, one of the most profitable businesses at this scale in software in history. Um, we think they'll grow next year at about the same rate. In fact, they have the largest product release cycle in the history of the company um, that is coming right now. And what's gone on under the radar, what a lot of people haven't seen, Mm -hmm. They build a team out of Google, Greg, Sridhar, Vivek, etc., that is powering all these machine science workloads, everything that they're doing around AI. Uh, they made an acquisition of Neva earlier this year. So I think they're one of the sleepers in, uh, in AI. Um, they're only a sleeper because everybody's migrated to the head of the, uh, uh, of, of the software uh, uh, sphere this year with Microsoft and Amazon. But I think they'll have another excellent year next year. And remember, they're not trading at some crazy multiple of revenue. We have them trading at something like 40 times 2025 free cash flow. So this is a business that's trading cheaper than, sale, than ServiceNow did for most of uh, its growth phase. Um, so now I think you can buy it. You know, when we, we talk about the companies that have secular growth that are benefiting um, from this new super cycle and technology, it certainly should be on your list. Well, forget about a sleeper um, because it's not sleeping anymore. That's Uber, uh, which I know you own. Jenny owns it too. So I wanted to give her the ball, ask you a question about uh, a stock that's almost a double over the last 12 months. Jenny. So Brad, before you were talking about highest and best use, you know, or opportunity cost of money. So where we stand with Uber is we've actually been trimming it a little bit. We bought it about a year and change ago at $22, and that was predicated on the expectation for this huge free cash flow boom. But here we are now, and the free cash flow boom is happening, happened, right? Happening happened, and and the share price has moved in advance of that. So there's price targets out there around 60. I think where I'm struggling with it, and I love what you think, is like, how do you actually stick with it for the super long? run with like expectations for it to maybe grow more than 10% in the next year because if it's not only going to grow 10% next year share price right because it's already it's already anticipated all that free cash flow like how do you justify keeping something like that in your portfolio when maybe you step away from tech and find things that have significantly more growth and much lower valuations well uh, it, it, it congrats on buying it at 22 bucks um, you know there weren't a lot of believers at 22 dollars but hey, in Brad, honor no of one of my investment either <laughs> in one of my investment heroes in honor of him Charlie Munger um, he would tell you the hardest thing to do in investing is to do nothing to let your compounders compound and I know this show we talk a lot about trading I get on here and Scott says, ah, oh, you know, your, your book looks pretty boring. It's the same stuff that, you, that you've always held. Our holding period is three years. You know, you, duration on world-class assets matters because anybody can miss a quarter. Priceline, I remember back in 2006, missed a quarter. We were in Priceline for 100X in the public markets. And when I think about the people who watch this show, right, like one of the most dangerous things, think about what the advice they were getting retail investors at the start of this year, right? Sell all your tech stocks, they're dangerous. Put them in bonds, you can earn 4% risk-free. And what happened? $250 billion of retail money, mutual fund money, followed that advice, traded out, put it in bonds that were supposedly safe, and bonds had one of their worst years on record. 
And they traded out of things like Uber at precisely the wrong time. Post-traumatic stress and the desire to trade stocks is hugely dangerous for most investors. When we look at Uber, we have it trading, you know, our target, I think, is something like 17 or 18 times 2025 free cash flow. It's high 60s. Um, we think the competitive mode is wider than it's ever been. I mean, listen to this. Black cabs, the famous black taxis in London, are now on the Uber app. I mean, hell truly has frozen over, right? They are the dominant. They are the verb ride share on a global basis. Kudos to Dara. It would have never happened without Travis, but it was the perfect baton pass to Dara. And with this new CFO, I think you're going to see a whole new wave of cost consolidation in that business. I think in the most recent quarter, they again had net zero new headcount. Dara knows what it means to get fit. Now they just need to squeeze another nickel, another dime out of every one of those transactions. They're doing billions of transactions a quarter. They're expanding the verticals in which they're competing across retail. Everybody thought the delivery was dead, but you know, I'll tell you in Silicon Valley, DoorDash was dominant. And now I just look at the behavior of my team. We order lunch every day. It used to be 100% DoorDash and now it's probably 50-50 Uber Eats and DoorDash. So I think there's a lot of run, running room for them, but again, like I said, with all these tech stocks, they were so mispriced at the end of last year that, you know, that was the time to really load the boat. Today, I, I can't blame you for, for trimming a little bit of your position because it's not going to double over the course of the next year. But you know what? Compounding at 10, 15, 20 percent for a long duration in world class assets that have expanding margins, I think is a good place to be. You mentioned um, Mr. Munger and obviously as we marked his his passing this week, um, you know, we're thinking of the contribution that he and, and Mr. Buffett have made to what we all do and talk about for a living. I know you had gone out to Omaha on numerous occasions. You knew all of them um, well, and you still correspond with some of the people at Berkshire. Do you have a thought that you want to share with us about what Charlie Munger has meant to the style of your own investing and how you'll think about what his legacy is going to be? You know, thanks for asking, Scott. I grew up a poor kid in Indiana, 1978, double digit interest rates and inflation. My dad had lost his business. We lost the house. And I was trying to make sense out of the world. And, you know, and, and some of the people that I started reading when I got into high school uh, were Berkshire's annual letters. And they really kind of explained the world to me in a way that made sense. And they ex inspired me really to try to get into the game. And I remember when I bought my first stock, right, that I was lucky enough to buy because my grandfather had sacrificed everything and left me a few bucks when he died after, you know, never spending any money on himself. And, you know, that was really an inspiration from them. And, you know, and a lot of people say that Altimeter brings the sensibilities of a value investor to Silicon Valley. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. We have longer holding periods. We're not trading around the quarters. We're trying to buy, find companies with big moats. You know, we were just talking about Uber and I was in, in Omaha not long ago. And, and one of the guys said to me, now Uber, that's a tech company we can really understand. Remember, they have half of their public book in Apple. And I said, why Uber instead of Snowflake or some other things that you're already in? They're like, some of these things are just too complex for us to really understand. But they said, Uber is a verb. Everybody on the planet Ubers, like they've been in rental cars, they know the taxi market. So Uber was something they could really get their arms around. I think one of their great, uh, you know, one of great, uh, you, you know, things about Charlie was his intellectual humility, was his ability to know what he didn't know 
And it just, you know, a lot of people, we've sold a lot of people a lot of garbage in the investment business. This idea that diversification is risk mitigation, totally untrue. I'll take one excellent Apple over 50 mediocre companies any day of the week. They know what that's all about, and I learned it from them. They inspired me. As you know, one of the things I'm working on, Invest America, a $1,000 seed investment account for every child born in America, 3.7 million children a year, right? I would love to partner with Berkshire on this initiative. I think it's an honor to Charlie Munger because they know the best way to get ahead, right, is to start with a really small snowball at the start of your life and a really long hill and bet on the upside of America. Charlie was always on Team America. Buffett's on Team America. I'm on Team America. Um, and I just want to get more people in the game. I was lucky that he inspired me to get into the game. Um, and uh, I cherish my friendships there. Oh, I'm glad you shared those views and thoughts with us. I appreciate you coming on so very much. Thanks, Brad. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. That's Brad Gerstner from Altimeter. And by the way, we are going to have much more on the life and legacy of Charlie Munger in a CNBC special. Charlie Munger, a life of wit and wisdom tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC. Hope you'll watch that and think about those words that Brad Gerstner shared with all of us. Ahead, we're tracking the trades. Kevin Simpson making some new moves in his portfolio. We'll tell you about them coming up. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We're back on Halftime, and I'm Silvana Hanau with your CNBC News update at this hour. The path is cleared once again for Customs and Border Patrol to remove a razor wire from the Texas border. A federal court denied a motion today that would have stopped the removal. Texas Governor Greg Abbott put the wire in place to stop illegal crossings, but Customs and Border Patrol officials argue it injures migrants and poses a humanitarian risk. Russia's Supreme Court declared the LGBTQ plus movement as extremist today, effectively outlawing activism in support of that community in the country. The hearing was behind closed doors and did not include a defendant. The court applied the extremist label to the wider international movement for LGBTQ plus rights rather than any particular group. And Detroit is earning its title as the Motor City. It just became the home to the country's first wireless charging public roadway for electric vehicles. The quarter mile stretch of street can power EVs as they drive over the rubber coated copper coils buried underneath the road. Halftime Report returns after this. All right, some committee moves now. Uh, Kevin Simpson, 
you know, we always say how active you are, and you, and you truly are. You bought more Broadcom. Let's do that one first. Why? Yeah, well, the, the, um, the reason we brought, we, we brought Broadcom into the portfolio is that we had Apple called away. So oh, we, I remember we, that. We right. talked about that a little bit last week, so we yep. had a void in the tech space. Broadcom, now with the VMware acquisition completely in the rearview mirror, we think that broadens out their ability on software, revenues, the, 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 the combined whole was a lot better. We're old school tech, we need dividends, we need dividend growth. This is one of the few names, strong dividends, strong dividend growth. And again, lots and lots of free cash flow. It's funny you mentioned that, because you know, I don't think when we speak about Broadcom guys that we acknowledge the dividend, that they actually pay and as you say, grow their dividend. It's just, yeah. uh, just something that falls under our collective radar, I think. Do you want to know why I don't own it, which is terrible? Um, so. During the pandemic, it was super cheap. It had like a five plus percent yield. It's an amazing product line. But the problem for me was that I can't research it functionally because I've never read an annual report that is that light. And there's not really deep granular information on it. So you can't go into the different business lines. The lightness of the annual reports makes me uncomfortable because I feel like I need to pass on my research trust to my clients and I couldn't get comfortable with it. And they're not super shareholder, um, I don't know, open, right? So you you can watch individual. But they sure are shareholder friendly by I virtue know. of what the stock has done and the fact that I they are know. paying you a dividend. But and let me it kills me. Let me go back to, to Kev real quick too for uh, AEM. It's a gold play. Yeah, this right? is this is a fun one because it's not typical to our universe of stocks. But we wanted to get in the commodity space on gold specifically, and because of the dividend cuts with Barrick and the dividend cuts with Newmont, they were no longer really in our universe. So we had to go with uh, a, a name a little bit outside of it. Magnico Eagle Mines is something that has had double-digit earnings growth over the past three years. But more importantly, if we talk about dividends and dividend growth, over the past three years, they've increased it by 27% on average. Broadcom, by the way, was 13% over the past three years. Yeah, so wild. very, very strong dividend growth, nice margins. They're in Mexico, Australia, and Canada, so pretty safer countries when you look over the, um, the gold space. They have two of the largest gold mines in the country, and they're the third largest gold miner in, in, in the country, uh, in the, excuse me, in the planet uh, in and of themselves. So new name for us and something I really like. I wanted to ask you, uh, dividend growth was a better strategy this year than, than dividend absolute dividend. Yeah. Bare dividend income. Barely. Do you think that's going to carry through, both of you guys, <laughs> quite frankly, do you think that's going to carry through into 2024? I mean, I think it was lousy in 2023 for dividends and dividend growth. Sure, so, but rel relatively speaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, I think we can get a revision to the mean where if we're at a, a, a fresh start at 20, like we were in 2021, growth people will always pay up for. But Jenny's stocks and our stocks from a multiples perspective are undervalued because our companies have made more money, they've done more share buybacks, they've increased dividends, so they can grow into the multiples. Quickly, please, so you want to add a thought go, to that? It kind of goes back to the opening thing with like John Rogers versus, versus Brad. Right, where if John Rogers is right and it's small cap and value <coughs> that outperforms next year, then yeah, then the dividend income stocks and the dividend growth stocks offer elements of small cap value, all sorts of stuff. An important if, distinction. <laughs> Up next, you. Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. <laughs> Halftime will be right back. Hey, I know when somebody's out for the gig. <laughs> Watch your back, Scott. He's coming for you. Nah, I'm good. We're back. I'm busy. This. I'm good. <laughs> Thank you.
Our senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joining us now, as you can see. What's your what's your good word here on this final trading day of November? Yeah, you know, we continue to see Scott um, effectively a made-to-order uh, digestion of a big rally. I don't know if it can continue like this, but it's been sort of painless at the index level. We've gone nowhere in, in the big caps, but you see the rotation. We're talking about it uh, for a while right now. Everyone kind of betting the field against the favorites. That's gone on for several days uh, at this point. I do wonder exactly how much. Of a, uh, of a defensive bid there is in the mega cap growth stocks. In other words, as people get more comfortable with the soft landing scenario, does that uh, bit of the premium come out of that? I obviously heard the conversation with Brad Gersher talking about the better earnings prospects long term, but at least some of the outperformance year to date has been because that group has been considered buffered against the macro pressures, even the rate rises, and of course, uh, you know, longer term disruption. They seem to have all the cards. I wonder if they, uh, they have to, you know, throw some on the table here. Yeah. Uh, it's been one of those days where the data has people, you know, once again, using the Goldilocks word. Yeah. It's hard to really assail. You can't disprove, uh, you know, the, that the soft landing uh, inputs are in place. I think that's what the market's riding on for a while right now. Pretty much everyone feeling like we can defer until early next year the verdict on exactly whether we're slowing too much or whether something's going to catch up with, uh, with this market. But, yeah, it's pretty tough to, to argue with how it's going, although the yield response, of course, bit of a sell the news uh, in Treasuries on the PCE number. All right. I'll see you on closing bell. Thanks, as always. That's Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator. Quick break. Final trades next. Hope you'll join me on Closing Bell, 3 o'clock Eastern today. We're going to get the very first cyber truck delivery during our hour. We're going to show you that live. Bryn Talkington, she owns Tesla. She'll be with us. Joe T., Gabriela Santos, and Chris Harvey drops a new note today from Wells Fargo on where he thinks this market's going. So I hope you'll join me in a couple hours from now. Final trades, Jenny Harrington, you're up first. Okay, national retail properties. The stock's still down 12% on the year, 5.5% yield. As rates went up, it came down. As rates are coming down and stabilizing, business should be fine. Kevin Simpson. Broadcom, it's down 1.5% today, 10% off of its highs, and it's a stock we really like for the long term. Farmer Jim, that must be you at General Motors. You're it, just doing that because I'm back? Well, yes, but there's a, also another reason, which is that they've got about 15 days' worth average volume of share buybacks going on right now, so this is going to last for a while. Okay. JB. Victory lap in CrowdStrike. I wasn't on yesterday, but the stock went absolutely bananas to the upside. I am still long, not selling a share. All right. Good stuff, everybody. Thanks for watching. See you on Closing Bell. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and 
starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.